<laughs> you eventually get beat over the head by the GM's plot, and then have to run away. There's a train coming. Oh, oh, we're we're standing on railroad tracks. I didn't notice earlier. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, you're not getting railroaded. You're just on the tracks. <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Laboratory in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 183 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're talking about how to create the baddies in your game. But first the rogue traders start digging holes in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign. And later, the mummy makes Tomb Raiders pay in the Character Creation Forge. Total Party Thrill is brought to you this week by Cobalt Press. They've got a new book, Courts of the Shadow Fey, for 5th edition. Intrigue and adventure await you in the Shadow Realm with Courts of the Shadow Fey, a 5th edition planar adventure for characters of level 7 to 10. That's a nice, sweet spot. I think we did an entire episode in the Goldilocks levels. Mm-hmm. This one was designed by Wolfgang Bauer and our friend Dan Dillon. And it will pit your heroes against the Queen of Night and Magic when she announces that the city of Zobek and its people are hers by ancient right. To save the city, you'll need to confront the Shadow Fae in the heart of their own realm. Do you think she ever gets angry if people call her the Queen of Magic and Night? She's like, no, that's that's not how it is. Well, the Queen of Magic and Night is like a totally different person who lives in a different region. And like, it's just, it's rude that you would get them confused. Right. She's elsewhere. What, do all Fae look alike to you? What's wrong with you? Right, exactly. You can't that's, just say that. I'm not happy with you right now. <laughs> So this 148-page adventure contains a 100 NPCs, a map with more than 60 locations, and more than 40 combat and role-playing encounters. It's a lot of building, as we'll find out in this episode. Mm-hmm. So you can raise your status through courtly intrigue and duels of honor to win an audience with the queen herself and free the city, or you can fail miserably and become her servants. I think that's hey, probably fun, too. Just go ahead and fail. You know what? Why try? Hope is dumb. It's called Failing Forward for a Reason, okay? <laughs> I know this book ends when we get to level 10. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, you had a chance. Just blow it. If you had one shot, it doesn't matter. Just throw it away. <laughs> yeah, in, in this movie, there is a Mackay Pfeiffer. <laughs> so you can order Courts of the Shadow Fae at koboldpress.com. Speaking of terrible courtly etiquette, Shane... Where are we in the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign? So the Dynasty Unwarranted campaign is our Warhammer 40k Rogue Trader game played using Dark Heresy 2nd Edition pools by Fantasy Flight Games. And on the Death World Iblis Prime in the frontier city of Meridian, the Rogue Traders have set out to establish a colony in the name of the Holy Throne of Terra and their own prophets. So we trudged through the jungle. Um, we got harassed by Emerald Stalkers. Actually, it was a little more than harassed, right? We weren't catcalled by Emerald Stalkers. Uh, I don't think they have the vocal cords for that. Mostly oh, you they were just assaulted. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mostly they sneak up uh, behind you uh, and then disembowel you. Mm-hmm. That's pretty lame and inappropriate. Well, given the opportunity, they would have eaten you too. Mm, very true. Well, through it all, our expedition finally reached our mining site deep inside the jungle at the foot of what? Mount Nalthus? Is that what it's Mount, called? Mount Nalthus, yep. Yeah. So first off, we establish a perimeter as we always do so we don't get murdered more. Uh, and then the Leaf Lighters Guild, I think it was called. Uh, the Prospecting Company. 
Ah, uh, okay. Uh, burn back the foliage because that's what they do, which is why they're called the leaf lighters. Yep. And then step three, expand the perimeter to what you've already burned. That is uh, page one, two, and three, I believe, out of the Tactica Trank. Uh, yes. Uh, I have very large handwriting, and so <laughs> it's one step per page. I'm a rogue <laughs> trader. I don't conserve. <laughs> so, yeah. So, this is a, a time-intensive, expensive, uh, exhausting process, but the rogue traders ex- are, are sparing no expense and taking no risks um, and you end up spending the first week establishing a secure site so that you can begin shuttling your long-term equipment, you know, mining equipment and supplies and uh, manpower, you know, labor uh, into your mining site from Meridian. Yeah, this is how we sort of always begin every venture uh, slash every arc of the game, which is we're very careful. Uh, we do a lot of planning. Uh, we take no risks. And then, you know, midway or later near the end once everything's gone awry anyway we we just start shooting things burning them down and and blowing them up yeah you you eventually get beat over the head by the gm's plot and then have to run away there's a train coming oh oh we're we're standing on railroad tracks i didn't notice earlier (laughs) yeah no no, you're not getting railroaded you're just on the tracks It's a hyper it's a warp lane is what it is (laughs) right it's a warp gear i think all the flotsam and, and jetsam in the immaterium ends up here, mm-hmm. along with all those loose plot threads, which I believe is what the Empyrean is made of. So Trix starts drilling core samples, uh, trying to find the the richest vein you can uh, of rare earth minerals so that your drilling operation, your mining operation will be as successful as possible, as early as possible, and hopefully you can... Um, you know, generate some early profits, reinvest those, really build out and industrialize this colony. Right, and so we can get the hell out of the jungle. So my character Trank manages the perimeter, of course, and then sends out scouting parties beyond the wire to find out what is in the surrounding area. Um, sometimes we call them suicide missions. Uh-huh. So there are definitely other predators and dangerous flora, even, not just animals, but the emerald stalkers are the main threat. We established they're the apex predator in the area. Yeah, and you also find evidence of hunting and scouting parties uh, kind of operating in the general area, uh, but you don't find any evidence of permanent establishments nearby, which is good. You don't have any neighbors while you're out here. So meanwhile, our astropath Flare and our Heretech Doc get on the first shuttle back to Meridian, uh, where Doc goes to work on some tissue samples that we got from the Emerald Stalkers, and Flare goes out uh, making some new enemies. Yeah. So if you recall, uh, one of the factions in Meridian are a mercenary police spy organization called the Sentinels. And they kind of provide law and order in town. Such as it is. And you haven't had much contact with them. You've mostly managed to avoid them. You know, you picked a fight with some techno gangers. You've uh, made inroads with the peacekeepers. But uh, the Sentinels, they're just kind of hanging out there. And, you know, that's a scab that Flair just can't leave unpicked. That's disgusting. But you're right. So in classic Flair fashion, he decides that before he goes to meet the Sentinels, he wants to establish some leverage. So he tracks down a techno ganger, a member of the Digilords by the name of Fiber. 
And this guy, he doesn't look like very much. He's just like another wiry techno punk with a loud mouth and a, you know, a colorful haircut who's just just looking to, um, you know, find cool tech and party with his gang. Yes, it's the 1980s here on Iblis Prime. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but Fiber has depth. He is more than he appears. He uh, is also a bookie. And in his book are several Sentinels who um, haven't really been winning much at all recently. So Flair makes quick friends with Fiber because uh, he wants to know about those Sentinels in his book. And we'll find out what happens next week so this week Shane we are talking about building monsters like uh, you rob a graveyard obviously take body Mm -hmm. parts you stitch them together the organs don't reject each other because uh, that hasn't been invented yet correct Uh, or alternatively you can just um, harass somebody until they finally become a monster yes as you've done to me load these many (laughs) years Do you know we're almost at four years of this podcast? I know. That's awful. I realized that the other day. It's terrifying. We're getting dangerously close with 200. Oh, God. I don't know what to do then. Quit. And I'll have to carry on all by myself. (laughs) Oh, okay. It's just me. No honor amongst thieves. We won't even quit together. (laughs) So the goal of this episode, Building Monsters, is to walk through our approach to building monsters and use some of the ones that we built recently for our Dark Sun game uh, as the template for that, right? Talk about our approaches and and how we think about building monsters, which is definitely going to differ from what's in the Dungeon Master's Guide. So in this episode, while we uh, mechanically are going to be talking about building monsters for uh, 5th edition Dungeons and Dragons, uh, a lot of the concepts and uh, the techniques are usable with many different kinds of RPGs where you actually have like, you know, a mechanical stat block. Right. So the first place I start when I think about building a monster is the purpose. Like, what am I trying to do with this monster? To kill. It is here to kill. (laughs) I mean, usually, yeah. (laughs) but more than that right what is the role of the monster in the story right who is this monster supposed to represent is this a boss is this you know a sub boss is this just a minion in the crowd is this maybe a special minion that needs to stand out above the crowd but not be an especially large challenge yeah so to clarify here by monster you are also talking about like humans npcs any anyone that the party would fight Uh, right exactly somebody who exists primarily to get fought and ultimately to die probably so you also want to think about um, how they're used in the battle not just in the story so uh, are they going to be a single threat like um, do they stand on their own are they going to work as part of a team Um, does the party already have knowledge of them like have they met before is this a known adversary are they familiar with their abilities do you need to have some surprise abilities or is this uh, monster an entirely new kind of threat that they've never met before yeah and and also think about what that means uh, from your story perspective right so uh, are the players meant to be surprised that this monster exists right like is this does this monster happen to be the answer to a puzzle um, or like the the solution to a mystery that they've been trying to solve. Right. They've been trying to find the murderer. They have six pieces of evidence. None of it really makes sense until they meet this thing. Right. Um, and and the, the goal here, right, is to figure out what are the story elements that this monster needs to um, represent 
in order to feel like part of your campaign and fit into your game, right? Because otherwise you could just take any monster off a shelf and like when you open up door number three, there's a troll. You know, when you open up door number four, there's a scroll, 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 Medusa. Or flip, 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 (laughs) whatever the case may be. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) Then you also want to think about what's the role of the monster in the game. And this mostly comes down to how big of a challenge is this guy supposed to be, right? Um, Is this supposed to be a threat on its own? Is this supposed to be, um, you know, one of many? Uh, Is this supposed to be a difficult encounter for them to overcome? Is this supposed to demonstrate their power by being an easy monster to destroy? You know, like what's the purpose of it uh, mechanically to represent? Yeah. uh, Are we spending the majority of a session on this fight? Because uh, if we're not, I really want to make sure that this is going to be over quickly. Right. And if we are, I really want to make sure it's not over quickly. <laughs> right. And, and a lot of times, like, you have monsters, or, or at least in our games, we end up throwing monsters in early encounters that are just there to soak up abilities, right? To, like, weaken the party enough to present a challenge of something later, right? Um, kind of fish out those shield spells or fish out those counter spells so that the fight that happens later is going to be more difficult or more taxing yeah and this is actually a design concept of fifth edition where i guess what is it six to eight encounters between leveling and two to four encounters per adventuring day or something think, like that i think it's actually like six to eight per day which is just absurd oh no that's crazy don't do that that's time for that uh, yeah I don't have 12 weeks to play one adventuring day. Right. And then you also want to think about any information that the monster needs to convey to the players. So this could be dialogue or narration that they need to deliver, but it could also be parts of how they're described or their abilities or what they do that needs to tell the players something. Um, And if that's important information to convey, you need to make sure that that monster is going to survive long enough or have the abilities necessary to actually give that information to the players. You know, you can't have a, you can't have your solution to the mystery, right? Like the, uh, the orangutan who goes wild in the room org can't get one shot by the first guy through the door before demonstrating it's capable of ripping things apart. Yeah, and this is a good chance to telegraph what else is going to come in the game, especially early on. Uh, Like if you decide that your big bad is, you know, intelligent and tactical and, you know, likes to use minions, then maybe hobgoblins are are a good option because, you know, they're disciplined already. Um, They like to get paid for example, it uh, might demonstrate that uh, the person that your party is actually going to face uh, in the end is probably someone who's well-connected and actually you know, has money. Uh, of course, it's very different if your party is coming across low-level devils versus low-level demons, for example. That tells you a lot about the kind of person you're ultimately up against, or like the kind of thing, right? Obviously, if the end... Um, if the BBEG is a demon prince, you're probably not going to be fighting a ton of devils early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, likewise, if you've got a big bad, for example, that's going to be immune to, say, fire damage. Well, it's helpful to create some lower level minions that are also either resistant or immune to fire damage. So the party is already conditioned and has like some foreshadowing that they're going to need to use something else when crunch time comes. 
Yeah, it also helps your ranger, <laughs> and they, you yeah. know, could use that help. <laughs> <laughs> what do I need to study up on this week? Because apparently I can't ever change it. So once I know what the purpose of a monster is, I like to think of it as a, I, I like to think of the high concept of the monster, right? Like what is the, the major design or purpose or description uh, of this monster that makes it special so that I have criteria when I'm making decisions later to bounce it against? Yeah, I think of this as like the description that I would tell to someone who didn't play the game so that they understand what, what the heck the party was fighting like once i recount the actual battle that we're going to happen we're going to have eventually yeah or uh the other way to think of it is like if you were going to put this in the monster manual with a one sentence blurb to interest uh you know somebody just uh swiping through what would you put what would you how would you describe it to make people excited about using it and it really helps to nail that down um, to make sure that it's not really loosey goosey because once you actually put it in writing or, you know, you have specific words to describe this creature and what it does, then that really gives you parameters for actually designing it. So uh, some of the monsters that we're going to talk about and we'll link in the show notes that uh, we created for dark sun, um, the high concepts that we had there. And this, this literally like I was working with Angelo on this. So he told me what he needed. Um, I was going to miss a few sessions. So I started work on it. Um, he gave me, you know, I need a Thrykreen pack hunter. Okay, cool. I'll figure out what that means. Right. Um, but every ability that I give that monster uh, will either feed into its nature as a Thrykreen, like a, you know, a multi-armed mantis person, or a pack tactic hunter kind of uh, character. Yeah, each one of those words told you something about what it was going to do, right? It's going to be a, a psionic mantis person uh, that works in a group together and is able to track prey and then kill it. Uh <laughs> And each of those things actually was revealed to the the party because, like, you know, I was in the party that actually fought it, um, or them, uh, the the pack of Thrykreen hunters. Uh, each of those was sort of revealed at different times, right? We realized we were being followed. Okay, well, they're hunters, obviously. Um, oh, it's a Thrykreen. Okay, well, we'll just kill it. Oh, nope, there are four of them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Angelo also asked for an undead defiler uh, that was focused on necromantic abilities. So basically he said uh, a lich defiler. And then he also asked for a variation on the theme. He wanted a living defiler who was focused on radiant and fire damage. Uh, So we'll see how those two sort of began as one and then branched off into two different kinds of monsters. Right. All right, so multiple different kinds of approaches uh, for building these monsters. And I think, you know, once you are doing it a lot, you'll find a way that works best for you and you'll tend to stick with it. But, you know, even if you are really accomplished at this already, um, I recommend like shaking things up and trying it a different way just to either one, keep yourself fresh or two, see if something new is working better for you. Yeah, so the first approach, and certainly the one I use most often, um, and actually because I use this so often, I kind of volunteered to help Angelo because I wanted to start doing a little more hands-on building. Uh, But first of all, you could reskin, right? And that just means look through a book, find a monster that's been published that you like, 
uh, reskin its abilities, describe them in a different way that meet the needs that you have for your high concept and for your uh, story purpose. Yeah, I mean, this is exactly what we talked about before, which is open the book to the troll and use the troll, but don't call it a troll. Right. You know, take its uh, take a claw attack and describe it as a sword, and all of a sudden you have a knight with a regeneration amulet. Yeah, I mean, you call him Wolverine. You know, mm-hmm. like he's got claws now. Um, it doesn't matter if you like try to cut off his arm; it doesn't come off, and then it just heals instantly. Right. That's mostly what we're not going to talk about today. Um, you know, it's pretty straightforward to reskin. We want to talk about actually building and interacting with the numbers and abilities yourself. Yeah, because that approach limits you to what is in published books. And I think especially at higher levels, higher challenge ratings, there's a dearth of options. And eventually your players are going to catch on that like, oh, great, this is that like 17th level uh, behemoth again. Right. We've, we've killed Asmodeus 13 times. <laughs> His AC isn't that high. It's weird. <laughs> so yeah, you can take uh, one of these existing monsters and do more than reskin. You can modify. Um, swap out different abilities, scale them up or down if there isn't anything available at the particular challenge rating that you're looking for. Um, You can pair them down so that extraneous abilities are sort of thrown to the wayside and then use that as a chassis to build all different types of monsters. Yeah, another another thing to think about is um, look for abilities that are spells and just make them non-spell casting um, or take them as condition um, as situational spells and just convert them into the stat block that sort of stuff um all ways to modify monsters make it much easier yeah one thing i tend to do is i i look at spell lists and the first thing i do is like ignore half of it because like there's no way that i'm going to remember all of these spells or what they do to be able to use them in a battle and there's no way that this battle is going to be long enough that this creature has enough time to use every single spell because most of these spells cost an action right right yeah so anything that's like a story element uh you just get rid of anything that takes an hour to cast like forget about it right you know like (laughs) (laughs) i wanted them to do it so they did it or they didn't do it whatever yeah my favorite one is uh is mage armor like (laughs) as as though i'm ever gonna run out of first level slots as a as a you know npc i'm ever gonna run out of first level slots and if it wouldn't just be easier to set my ac to 15 in the first place yeah because you know they just cast it three times a day. Yeah, or not. They just cast it <laughs> 10 minutes ago. Who cares? <laughs> it's eight hours. <laughs> also, if you're building enemies with 12 AC and they're a spellcaster, they're not lasting. Yeah. Okay, so let's start from the Undead Defiler that I built um, because I think that one is the is the better example of taking a stat block and modifying it. So... What I did here was take the Devcaran Lich, which is a new monster from the Guildmaster's Guide to Ravnica. And the Devcaran Lich is the elf lich of the setting, basically. Um, the challenge there, and, and, and as I looked at it, like it has a ton of abilities that really work for defiling. It's very focused on necromancy, so it's got a regeneration ability, it gets legendary resistance, um, it's got a, a lot of great spells that just fit really well, things like Vampiric Touch, um, Bestow Curse, uh, Animate Dead, um, as well as all of the undead boons that you get just in general, right? So um, it 
it has an ability called Undead Fortitude. It lets you ignore dropping to zero hit points. Uh, it's got legendary actions that um, include just like sucking all of the life force out of everyone around you and then regaining it as uh, as HP. Yeah, and it's, it's got turn resistance. It's It's very much built as like... I am focused on undead and I am undead and I am focused on preventing you from killing me because I am undead. Right. Uh, especially if you're like <laughs> one of those characters who is specced for killing undead, uh, which we had a few of those actually when we fought it uh, and it still didn't help that much. Right. <laughs> so first of all, um, Angelo asked us to scale down uh, or asked us for something in the range of like CR 11 to 12 um, for this monster. So the Dev Karen Lich starts at CR 14. So the first thing we had to do is just reduce hit points. Um, AC was already low, but um, the hit points were a little high. So we just scaled those down um, to be in line with its challenge rating. Uh, yeah. And you know, the, the DMG has uh, some guidelines for this, but in general, you want to pull down everything that, uh, is level based, right? So you're going to bring down saving throw bonuses and skill bonuses. And yep. uh, did it end up losing a spell slot? The 5e builds creatures pretty loose on like what level spells they should actually have based on CR. Yeah, it ended up losing its seventh level slot. Mm, that's good because that would have screwed us a lot. Yeah, it, so it def- it starts as a 14th level caster, and I mm. scaled it back to an 11th level mm. caster. Okay, so yeah, it lost um, spell slot and uh, the uh, difficulty class. The DC for the um, spell saving throws also drops. Uh, yeah, and it's hit modifier. Um, but I kept I kept the abilities that made sense and either just renamed them or didn't even bother. You know, things like regeneration... Um, yeah, that, that makes total sense to me. If you're a defiler, you're sucking the life, life force out of everything around you, it channels into your hit points. Um, that also helps with its very low HP total to give it some longevity. It just keeps adding back hit points. Did you do anything with with its damage immunities, condition immunities, or resistances? I suspect not at this level. Uh, no, I didn't. Right. Um, um, the only time I would probably do that or think about doing that is if you're moving a creature from sort of like one tier to another, right? So this is originally CR 14. If you're going to like CR four, which is a lot and much more difficult then obviously um, this thing was immune to like charm, exhaustion, frightened, paralyzed, poisoned, and uh, what resistant to damage from non-magical attacks. Like that's very difficult for CR four characters. It's not that difficult for like level nine or 10. Right. Yeah, the the main thing that it had that was going to actually matter for resistance was its condition immunities. Um, The damage resistance really didn't amount to much because it was just um, immune to poison, which nobody uses, and then um, damage resistance to necrotic because you guys had magical attacks. Yeah, and also it was a defiler, so it was throwing out a lot of necrotic damage. I mean, usually that doesn't affect the person who's doing it, but... You know, it's also possible that they end up in the same room as another defiler. Yep. So the main thing that I switched on this was its its main action. So the Devkarin Lich has an ability called Noxious Touch, which is a melee spell attack, and on a hit, it forces a con save or the target gets poisoned. Um, 
poison doesn't really fit with defiling, right? Like defiling is about draining. And we've kind of already established in Dark Sun that um, exhaustion was a major threat. So so, uh, on a failed con save, you just gain a level of exhaustion. Which is a lot more powerful than poison, than being poisoned. Well, it's actually a lot less powerful the first time. <laughs> yeah, the very first time. <laughs> One but, level of exhaustion is almost nothing to you, but level two of exhaustion and now you're feeling it. Is, is terrible. And this was an ability that could be used on legendary actions. <laughs> I'm not saying it was a bad choice. I'm just saying it was a strong choice. It was a choice. <laughs> <laughs> and then it also has a uh, disrupt life legendary action, um, which makes... It's basically a ranged uh, AoE effect, which as published is an AoE effect for some necrotic damage. Uh, And I converted that to also add its defiling effect um, so that you would also take a level of exhaustion if you failed the save. Also in a legendary action. Well, it took two legendary actions. Uh, But an off-turn action. (laughs) Oh, there's actually a typo in that one. Oh, yeah. It should be three. (laughs) <laughs> Wait, really? Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> it's okay. It didn't actually get busted out that much, which is good. Because, mm-hmm. man, I look at this thing, and this is uh, difficult. You need to kill this thing quickly before it um, tips over that fulcrum, of that exhaustion fulcrum, where, like, it does one or one level to everybody is no big deal. But as soon as multiple people start having two or even three levels of exhaustion, they're very crippled. Mm-hmm. Um, but it only has 84 hit points, right? So it's not, um, it, it, it's in burstable range, right? Like a couple people, a couple party members getting a couple good hits in and it's dead before it really has a chance to do much. Now, fortunately, that isn't how it played out uh, at the table, but it was the way that the battle ended up turning, right? Was you finally focused it. I mean, maybe not fortunately for, for Susie, because... <laughs> Her character died. (laughs) Do you feel bad about that? I hope you feel bad about it. I don't feel bad at all. (laughs) Dark sun, baby. Uh, It wasn't the exhaustion that killed her, so. (laughs) If you would like to take a look at the stat block for the Undead Defiler, which I modified from the Dev Karen Lich, uh, you can find a link to that in the show notes. So... The most complicated and involved way to build a monster is to build it from scratch. Um, the DMG does give you step-by-step instructions on exactly how to do this, page 273. Uh, it, it's pretty easy. There are only 20 steps. 20 whole steps. Mm. 20 factors in D&D that you need to take, <laughs> take care to note, uh, all of which impact the difficulty of facing it. Also, I believe that most people who've run the numbers have found that you don't really come up with very good monsters if you follow those steps. Mm-mm. Like they're either extremely powerful for the CR at lower levels or they're just easily steamrolled at higher levels. Right. And we still have the sort of like the bag of hit points problem where they're not doing enough damage, but they have too many hit points so they stay on the table forever. Right. All right, so how did you go about building uh, the Sunscorched Defiler from scratch? So again, the Sunscorched Defiler had to be our fire and radiant themed uh, living defiler. So basically, you know, like a walking bomb. And so 
I looked through the book. Uh, I had just built an undead defiler, so I had an idea of what defiling should look like um, on a character. Um, and I had an idea of its um, rough stat block, right? Like I, I had an idea of how many hit points it needed to have and where its uh, saves and that sort of thing needed to land. So that was helpful to already have that um, kind of in my back pocket. And then from there, I I figured it's a, it's a living creature, you know, a living character who just wants to use defiling, right? Uh, given over to evil and enhancing their magic that way. So the place that makes the most sense for me to start is what do mages get, right? And a mage is a, is a super low level NPC, um, but it has a spell list. And I figured the background of this defiler is probably started from the spell list, right? And then decided to swap things in and out and leveled up beyond that to access more fire and radiant magic. So I took the mage spell list and then I said, cool, how do I get as much fire in here as possible? And then what do I need around this character to support that spell list? Yeah, I think it's important to note that when we say building from scratch, like it it doesn't mean sitting at a blank piece of paper and coming up with a, a monster, right? You are stealing and taking inspiration from as many different places as you possibly can. Um, I, I think it was smart to start with a spellcaster because you were building a spellcaster. Um, right. If you already have the Devkarin Lich and you know that you know, you're building another Defiler, one nice thing about uh, D&D is that, that spell lists are often built along themes uh, and there are uh, different variations for your different themes. So the regular Defiler is undead and is focused on necrotic damage and like raising and controlling undead. So you can actually look at a lot of those spells and just say, okay, what do, what is the fire and or radiant version of this spell? So they've got Circle of Death or they use an ability that looks a lot like Circle of Death because it's an AOE necrotic damage effect. Great, I'll just give them Fireball because that's the fire version of it. Or I'll give them Flame Strike because that's the fire and radiant version of it. Mm-hmm. I think we've done this with a few of our like character creation forge builds, which is like, uh, I guess we'll just turn all the fire spells into the equivalent ice spell. Yeah. Right. Right. <laughs> that works. Yeah. So for the sun scorched defiler, uh, I knew it wasn't going to have that sort of longevity of a lich because it, it isn't going to have that, uh, regeneration ability. So I ended up just giving it a few more hit points to start. Uh, it's got like 108 hit points rather than 84. Um, and then on top of that, I gave it an ability called mantle of flame, uh, which is just a thorns ability. But every time you hit it with a melee attack, uh, you take 2d 10 fire damage in return. Um, just a little extra flavor for it. And on top of that, uh, I figure if you're wreathed in magical flames, that probably casts off some light. So I just gave illumination. You shed light for, uh, bright light for a 10 foot radius and dim light for 10 additional feet. So then when I looked at its spell list, I, I started going through, uh, looking at kind of a split of fire spells and core mage spells. So you have things on there like detect magic and mage armor and shield, because those are mage spells. But then you also have things like Fireball and Wall of Light and Sunbeam, because those are all very um, you know, thematic fire spells. Yeah, you're looking at the levers that you can adjust uh, and trying to take stock of how that's going to affect how the monster plays at the table. And you compare this to other monsters that you've run before. So for example, we have the Undead Defiler, and you knew that 
it it had some staying power, right? Um, it had you know condition immunities, uh, and it um, had different abilities where it could keep from uh, dying if it would reach zero hit points, right? Which meant that it didn't necessarily have to deal a whole lot of damage in one punch. It could just dole it out here and there or use some AOEs. Whereas this one, it has it has a few more hit points, I guess, but that doesn't mean anything when like someone drops a smite. Right. Um, th- it's still going to be overkill. So that means that, you know, this one sort of needs to like burn brightly before it explodes it needs to be able to dish out a lot of damage all at once to actually make a dent in the party before it inevitably like goes down in flames right (laughs) ashes (laughs) uh hopefully we all fall down (laughs) and i think those those are levers to keep in mind you know how long is this thing going to last versus how much of an impact is it supposed to have on your party so, you know, you can have um, low-level monsters. Uh, if they're just supposed to be a speed bump, uh, if they're just supposed to slow them down, if they're just supposed to let the uh, party sort of test out their abilities that they're, you know, just getting used to, they don't even need to dish out all that much damage either, you know? But if they are supposed to be at, like a quick, cool flash in the pan uh, that is still memorable, then yeah, you kind of want to make them glass cannons. They won't last very long, but they're they're going to hurt while they're around. Yeah, the, the lasting memory of this monster is definitely oh wow it hit me with you know 72 damage and i saved so i only took 36 like we decided we should kill it immediately (laughs) yeah i mean it was immediately killed that round like it got one action and probably one legendary action and then it was immediately focused and killed but you still remember that one big fireball shane what a terrible waste of work if you're creating something like this where it only lasts one round because you have to now throw away that character sheet that you put together and you can never use it again. Yeah. It would be such a shame if they were to come back and something were to happen to you. Yeah. <laughs> or if, Oh, I don't know. You now use that sheet that you already built uh, as the chassis for something else, or you could reskin <laughs> right. it, I guess, <laughs> or, <laughs> or you could modify it, I guess. Yes, just just turn its basic, uh, you know, ranged spell attack action into from hurl flame to hurl poison. Right, or just make it melee. Or you know what I do sometimes? Honestly, I give it stretchy arms. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or like a tentacle attack is the same thing as a ranged attack. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so then to finish this off, uh, knowing that it was sort of a, a mid-level boss type of monster, uh, I, I went ahead and gave it some legendary actions as well. Um, and I made sure to keep the defile action that the Lich had um, since, you know, I wanted some conservation knowing that these would be fought by the same players sort of in sequence. Uh, I wanted to I wanted to make sure that it was clear, like defiling is what gives this power, right? This soaking of um, of life force into necrotic damage and and gaining exhaustion. Like that's the mechanic that we're establishing as defiling at this level. Yeah, and these are helpful abilities for your players, actually, um, because it helps them understand what this monster is and potentially how to defeat it. So, you know, every time I have a big bruiser, I think, uh, is this an aggressive bruiser? And if it is, then great. I probably want to give it some form of a gore attack, a a charge attack, or a trample, or maybe all three. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, is is this a giant leviathan, like a huge creature that you could potentially get on top of? Then great. It needs some sort of area attack that isn't 
like a spell, but it has an area effect caused just by its massive appendages. A tail Seismic sweep. slam. Yeah, exactly. Hitting the ground and causing a localized earthquake. Right. So then, as we alluded to at the top, uh, your best bet is probably some combination of modifying and building from scratch. And And what... I tend to find here is that I will start with the chassis of a monster that makes sense, and then I will create new abilities from scratch that model the behavior that I'm looking for or the threat that I want to throw at the party, right? Like, mm-hmm. figure out what part of the party that I want to attack and create an ability that lets me go after that specifically. Yeah, I think that's definitely what I do too. You know, you find a baseline monster that's like pretty close to what you think you you want the feel to be and then you sort of trim off the noticeable parts of it the attacks that don't quite fit um or the attacks that we just mentioned the abilities that we just mentioned that um tell the party too much about it right like take away the trample the gore uh the charge attack take away the the teleportation attack or the the sneak attack um, because that telegraphs too much about what a monster is supposed to be and then give it those iconic abilities from something else. So how'd you do this with the Thrykreen Predator? So the Thrykreen Predator was interesting because Thrykreen have a ton of history in D&D, like dating back to the original Dark Sun. Um, but then they also had, like, they were a PC playable race. So there were lots of, like... Uh, paragon paths and prestige classes and, and different like named abilities that have been associated with Thrykreen over time. Um, so I, I kind of had a grab bag of abilities that I wanted to cram into the stat block to kind of represent like, oh yeah, it's a Thrykreen. And it doesn't just feel like any old monster attacking me from the shadows. It feels like a Thrykreen because Angelo just said, you know, uh, metaphysical claw or chameleon instead of you know blur or something like that so as a pack hunter and as a thrykreen i kind of wanted to um honor the um poison bite that thrykreen have had uh, historically so to me if you're making a bite attack to deliver poison that means you use your extra arms to grapple um, and I thought of the grappling monster that I like most um, that also happens to have that bite attack. And that's the uh, aberration, the chul. I hate the chul or the chul, whatever they are. I mean, I hate fighting them because they it's have good. a grapple attack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, so fortunately, grappling is super easy in fifth edition. Um, and, and basically the way it works is its, its main action is multi-attack. Uh, it makes two attacks with its claws. And if it already... Um, if it hits with a claw, it can automatically grapple you. Um, and if you multi-attack when you have a grappled target, then you can also make a bite. So it's a it's a pretty straightforward kind of chain of events, right? You multi-attack, you get something in your claws, the next turn you bite them. Yeah, um, I remember them tacking a whole bunch of times. I think I got stabbed by three of them at, in well, one round. That's what you get for being at the front. <laughs> Multi-grapple. <laughs> I'm the leader. <laughs> So you threw in some gladiator. Is that what you did? Yeah. So I took the tool and then I added gladiator because um, the other thing about Thrykreen, right, is that they are humanoid. They have many arms, which traditionally they have used to make extra attacks, which is why they were kind of broken as a PC race. Um, So to represent that, I figured what is a 
weapon based uh monster that has like a a good use of multi-attack right and i basically wanted to use the gladiator as the base for stats because it's already a humanoid um and it has that multi-attack ability and that's what it's based on um but then add in that poisonous bite for the thrycreen yeah gladiator is one of my go-to's as well because it's it's so simple but it's so effective like it hits things three times really hard and doesn't Mm -hmm. back down right so then it was just a matter of like rounding out the flavor abilities that I that we wanted a Thrycreen hunter, you know, right? Thrycreen pack hunter. Uh, so what should it have? Well, pack tactics is a thing that exists for many, many creatures, uh, notably like wolves and dire wolves. And that's just you get advantage if you have an ally within five feet of your target. Pretty straightforward. And then everything else I figured, hey, like psionics are super flavorful in dark sun. Why don't I just make them psionic abilities? Right. Um, so things like chameleon, no direction and location, agitate matter, telekinesis, um, psionic displacement and metaphysical claw. Those are all abilities that came out of the history of Thrycreen. And they're all just, uh, renamed, uh, spells or abilities. Agitate matter. That's produced flame. Right. Telekinesis mage hand. Magic weapon, metaphysical claw. Done. You just pick uh, a pseudosciency name. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's how you do psionics. <laughs> hey, wizards, I'm done. I finished your psionics. <laughs> <laughs> They're called synonyms. Um, I also gave it at will jump, which, you know, it's like, how Could- often does, does the jump mechanic matter to anything? Yeah, I think we have recommended that uh, particular warlock invocation zero times. <laughs> even though it's super cool right um and then like chameleon i gave uh invisibility once per day uh, can only target yourself and then for uh psionic displacement i gave the blur spell once per day and then you know you wrap up that whole package together and it ends up being a higher cr than either the chul or the gladiator uh, but not actually by all that much because i think crs are basically exponential All right, so what are some other tips for building monsters? So keep in mind your monster's win condition. Um, Don't lose sight of the goal. How does this monster win a fight? What is its strategy? How is it supposed to uh, survive a fight and win? And and make sure that whatever you come up with with your game mechanics is consistent with your high concept and its purpose. Yeah, you want to make sure that there's verisimilitude. And, you know, keep in mind that it's much easier to just rename something once you've already built this monster, like at at the table, you've built this thing, and if something does seem a little off, then great, on the fly, rename a reskin. <laughs> yeah. So, like, for each of these, like, the Thrycreen Predator wins by ganging up on you and uh, hitting you before you know what happened. Uh, the Sunscorched Defiler wins by burning your whole party at once before you can hit it back. And the Undead Defiler wins by having you beat on it and it doesn't die and slowly it drains your life force all at once. Yeah. Attrition basically. Uh, so I mentioned before that, you know, you can telegraph the abilities of a monster uh, in combat, but you can also telegraph them ahead of time. 
Um, you know, and whether that is, you know, through the minions uh, or could just be uh, through storyline or through environment. Um, if your players are about to face a Medusa and they don't know that they're going to face a Medusa, well, maybe they run across a statue garden. That should be a big tip off. You're looking at a Medusa, a cockatrice or a basilisk. Did someone chew on those statues? That's a basilisk. Right. <laughs> so you could just ask yourself that question, right? Uh, what, what would tip the hand of this monster and what could you telegraph to your players? So then just another another thing to keep in mind, because uh, you're building these custom for a given party, you have the ability to play rock, paper, scissors, where you're targeting the specific strengths and weaknesses of your party. Yeah, you would have built a sun scorched defiler much differently if most of the party were a red dragonborn who have, you know, auto resistance to fire or it were just tieflings mm-hmm. because uh, it didn't matter how well you built the monster it just would have been a pretty easy combat for us because you know everyone was already taking half damage right and its story purpose was to be a challenging boss fight right and in the same way uh you know when you are level nine the game sort of assumes that you're going to have access to magic weapons or like some way to make magic weapons uh whether that's the magic weapon spell or you know you're just using high level actual spells that deal damage but if you're playing a very low magic game where you didn't hand out any magic items you'll want to keep that in mind as well so just um just a general note here when you're planning these things you you definitely want to avoid routinely targeting um the player strengths and weaknesses if you're always bringing a perfect counter they just feel weak and fighting feels futile um so i would say that you generally want to build characters that are sort of um, partially weak and partially strong to what the party has at their disposal. Um, and it's it's a matter of them figuring out which parts work and which parts don't uh, as they're fighting. Yeah, I like that idea. It's, it's less about finding what will definitely uh, screw over your party or prevent them from doing their cool thing or, you know, let them do their cool thing to the point where um, they steamroll the encounters. It's more taking stock of what you have built and what you're throwing at the party and recognizing that, okay, one or two characters will have a very easy time with this. They might actually finish it off if they, you know, figure this out. That does mean that I probably need to make the rest of the encounter a bit more difficult and vice versa. Right. Um, And then another, another thing you can keep in mind uh, as you're building monsters is the super minion approach. So if they have a regular foe, you know, if they're fighting orcs or they're routinely fighting hobgoblins, then building that super minion who is a scaled up version of them, who is like just a little more extra has just a little more oomph has just a little more sneak or whatever it is. Um, can, can enhance that sort of, uh, verisimilitude and, and that sort of excitement around facing that monster group. Yeah, that's what you're looking for. You know, oh, hey, I remember fighting these when we were level four. Now, these seem the same, but like just a little more extra. They're a little (laughs) little over the top. They're a little flashier. Hey, that orc is carrying a banner on his back. (laughs) (laughs) Um, A a good way to do this is just to add the extra die or have them have similar abilities, but add knock-on effects, right? So they can either just do more damage or they can do damage plus a thing um, that the party isn't necessarily expecting. Right, or scale up the effect, right? Right. Uh, Rather than incapacitated, they are now paralyzed. Right. Or, you know, they were paralyzed for a round, now they're paralyzed for a minute with a save each round. 
So it certainly is more work to build your own monsters than to just use the ones that are presented in the Dungeon Master's Guide or, you know, whatever, um, like, uh, bestiary or monster manual comes with your game. But I think it is very rewarding, not just in feeling like, you know, you accomplished something and you, you're the one who actually created this interesting and fun encounter, but you know, it really helps you sort of get into the mindset of the mechanics of the game as well. And I, I personally think it's really good, uh, mental practice for actually running the game. Yeah. I mean, for me, I built monsters, uh, for you to face, uh, run by another another person so i didn't even get to actually see them in action and i enjoyed hearing the stories so much uh and hearing angelo's feedback of how it ran exactly the way i thought or it didn't run quite the way we thought it was going to but like it still turned out to be like a great story you know aside from the whole susie's character died yeah i also really appreciated being angry at angelo for sending these monsters at us but then at the end finding out that i could say you shane (laughs) (laughs) well do you hear that (laughs) that's me berating angelo and then apologizing profusely (laughs) well uh lest you find your character dead we better move on to the character creation forge but before we do that let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us we do the fearing from you you can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice Minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So Total Party Thrill is brought to you. This week by Elderwood Academy. They are artisans who craft amazing gaming products, including dice towers, dice trays, dice boxes, deck boxes, dice, and more. All the products are crafted to look like spellbooks, scroll cases, codices, and other awesome fantasy gear we love. Uh, Shane, I think you actually have one of these in your hands as we speak. I have been talking about this for so long, and finally, a dear listener provided it to me. So it's just proof that good things can happen. I have finally a scroll rolling tray provided by our listeners and also the people who run our network, (laughs) (laughs) Mr. James Intricasso and Mr. Rudy Basso. uh, They sent me a scroll rolling tray as a thank you for hanging out with them at a catacon, which is totally unnecessary. Yeah, you Um, should send them something for letting me hang out with them at a catacon. Yeah, I know. I I know. I know. I'll find something from Elderwood Academy to to offer in return. (laughs) But the point is I now have a scroll rolling tray. It is the coolest freaking thing because it rolls up in this nice little velvety bag. Um, It assembles really quickly. It's the right size for or, you know, like a 10 dice set, you know, your 4d6 set. Um, it It's a leather back or leather bottom, so it doesn't dent your table. Uh, it It's just exactly what I wanted it to be, and I'm so excited that I have it. This is the coolest thing in my collection now, and I am very excited to be able to roll metal dice without any guilt. I'm very glad you have it. I'm glad Angelo does not have one because he does not listen to our ads. Right. Screw that guy. <laughs> All right, so you can find that product and many more at elderwoodacademy.com slash don't split. All right, this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are building the mummy. Oh, poor Brendan Fraser. I don't mean in those movies. I mean poor Brendan Fraser. Yeah, his poor, poor career. Yeah. Look at what happened to Encino, man. Look what happened to Rachel Weiss. She's, you know, she should be thanking him. Thank you for 
jump-starting my career, and then I never looked back. George of the Jungle deserves better. Does it? I thought we deserved better than George of the Jungle. You're right. That's that's the correct order of operations. Okay, so what is a mummy? Uh, you know, they're undead. They're angry. They're obstinate. Uh, you know, you woke them up. That sucks. They've been sleeping for a long time. Uh-huh. And once you wake them, they chase you down relentlessly and either curse you or just kill you. Yeah. All right, so the build is Grave Cleric 10, Undying Pact of the Tome Warlock 10. I'm sensing a theme here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, th- we don't usually go for this kind of uh, level spread, but the level 10 abilities are both so cool and iconic that I think they work really well. So for Warlock, we get fifth level spells, including a lot of spells that work really well as horrible curses that you inflict on other people, like Ray of Sickness, Blindness and Deafness. Uh, hold person right paralyzed with fear contagion mm-hmm. which is basically just what the original mummy's curse was like a, a bad disease like mum- mummy rot yeah <laughs> and then of course a gaseous form which is when you convert into scarab beetles or whatever the hell it is that you use to skitter away yeah sandstorm whatever uh, you'll get advantage on saves versus disease which is good because you'll probably be levying a lot of that and you know if your gm is listening to our show they will probably uh, make you save against diseases that you inflict on other people because, you know, those people are contagious. As a undying warlock, undead will have a hard time attacking you, and once per day, you can also regain hit points uh, upon succeeding on a death saving throw. You can also regain those hit points when you use spare the dying on someone, but don't. Just wait until you succeed on a death saving throw. Right. Now, at level 10, you can finally hold your breath indefinitely, and you don't need food, water, or sleep, and you age at one-tenth the rate, which is about as close as you're going to get to actually being undead in D&D. Right. So, for invocations, you'll get five of them. Uh, Probably want to take Grasp of Hadar or Lance of Lethargy. Um, Look at the Book of Ancient Secrets. Mummies are almost always full of ancient secrets. Uh, Cloak of Flies, again, that's very thematic. Devil Sight, and then Relentless Hex lets you uh, teleport adjacent to someone who was cursed by you, which just, like, mummies don't traditionally teleport, but they do just always show up behind you. Mm-hmm. Or, like, they yeah. just walk out of the shadows. Right. Yeah, it's because they teleported. You just didn't see them do that. So from Grave Cleric, we'll get fifth level spells as well, things like Guidance, Bless, Cure Wounds, um, Call Lightning. Which I think is really cool. That's definitely something a mummy should be able to do. Uh, they'll be able to animate dead. If you, you know, are actually mollified by someone, you can always remove Curse. But more right. likely you'll just Gesh. Right. <laughs> Uh, and as a grave cleric, you'll be able to, you know, level your arm at someone point and inflict double damage on the next attack that hits them. And you'll be able to both detect and destroy undead, which is important because, you know, you're kind of a, a lord of undead. You're working your way toward being a mummy lord. Uh, and then fittingly, um, as a mummy lord, you know, capable of some uh, ridiculous feats of magic or improbability, you have as a capstone divine intervention, which is like a limited wish occasionally. All right, so leveling order. I think you'll start out with warlock one and then a level of cleric. And at that point, you really feel like you've got the build. Then go warlock six and cleric six to pick up those level six abilities and then warlock 10 and cleric 10. All right, Shane. 
Who is your mummy? Uh, my mummy is actually an animated suit of armor. That makes sense. So right? my animated suit of armor uh, was inside the manor of a house, uh, a noble house that had some great active evil befall it. Um, and probably generations of evil, you know, like real bad people who were just, um, you know, just the worst kind of nobles, um, vicious, you know, took it out on their own family members, you know, lots of betrayal and backstabbing and lots of, uh, you know, wandering spirits and that sort of thing. So Versailles. Oh, yeah, basically. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that evil so permeates the house that even the armor within it, you know, even just a suit of armor decoratively, um, perhaps worn by an ancestor, uh, is so infused with it that it isn't necessarily, um, you know, undead. It is actually coming alive. Um, so, you know, uh, it, it would be kind of a probably maybe like an Azamar, uh, would be sort of the way to do it. You know, kind of a, a very magical kind of person uh inside that suit of armor okay yeah i mean it makes sense undead are sort of halfway between living creatures and objects <laughs> well i mean don't get caught saying that to any undead <laughs> well you know at me okay <laughs> <laughs> look liches you get stitches liches get stitches mummies get dummies mummies get tummy rubs that just unravels them it's inappropriate <laughs> okay uh how about your character can it be a real character my uh mummy is also not really a mummy but it is undead uh my mummy is a member of the undying court in eberron uh it is a a a deathless an elf uh who was uh, heroic and brave and good and upon their death was inducted into the undying court through positive necromantic rituals that turned it into not an undead but a deathless uh, which is <laughs> really just um, undead but good uh, I think in Forgotten Realms sometimes maybe they're called a Bailnorn which is like a good type of elven lich because like elves have you know different variations on literally everything in the game right yeah, uh, but oh. yeah, is is basically a low level, um, deathless uh, a soldier. I think actually in three point five, the Eberron campaign setting had uh, stats for like a CR two or CR three, like undead deathless, who was like a very low level member of the Undying Court. Now, typically they don't go anywhere, but you know, adventurers are special, and maybe mine felt like she just didn't get enough adventuring done. When she was alive, she probably died very young, right? Heroically and bravely, and now is saying, eh, but I can get back out there. Maybe even foolishly and naively. Oh, right. Still very young, under a thousand years old, doesn't know what she's all about. Right. Yeah. All right. She's going out there uh, and she's going to make a difference again. All right. Works for me. Before we wrap up, let's take a moment to thank our Patreon supporters. Yeah, your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We're talking about player versus player combat, PvP. And in the Character Creation Forge? We're building, of course, the player killer. Oh, the player hater. Both, same thing. Don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah. Yeah, D&D, you suck. All right, that's it for episode 183 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. 
Thanks for listening. 